The question I want to explore a bit together this morning is a very simple question. The question is, how thick is your Jesus? I'm not trying to be rude, because I know it's a dangerous question to ask in Belfast, because in Belfast we have a particular kind of association with the terms thick and people. Even my father, who was a very mild-mannered man, could at times be heard saying things like, Don fellas as thick as two short planks. But I want to ask this question, how thick is your Jesus? Because the idea comes from uh, a book written recently by Glenn Stassen, uh, when he talks about the need for a thicker Jesus. So my question this morning is, how thick is your Jesus? Now, we don't tend to have a children's talk because the kids all go, which is great for them. And I'm rubbish at children's talks, but I do miss them. So I have brought my visual aids with me. And I'm kind of hoping that there's a couple of chocolate-holics nearby because I have some chocolate with me. <clears throat> This stuff is amazing. This is without doubt the thinnest chocolate I have ever come across. It comes in a little tray, it's that thin, and you have to be very careful with it, okay? Have you ever seen chocolate that thin before? Isn't that wonderful? The color of it. Oh, excuse me, I'll be back. Anybody like to try a piece? Any chocoholics around here? Yeah? Oh, there's Gordy Dara as a chocoholic. <laughs> okay, go in there and tell me what you think. They're going to regret this in a minute, actually. This stuff is 99% uh, chocolate. So when a good mouthful of this stuff feels like you have to <laughs> stand up and let them see the pain. <laughs> this stuff is amazing. Uh, a small square of this. It's all right, Gordon. You will recover. You will recover. You'll not hear a peep out of these guys now for the rest of the day. This is like sucking a big tablespoonful of cocoa powder. But it's amazing stuff. It's so thin. But the thing that strikes you about it is it's so fragile. It's so light, it's so breakable. This is real chocolate. If iron brew is made for a girders, this stuff is made for a concrete. This is um, proper Swiss chocolate in a block, and this is thick chocolate. That's proper chocolate. Do you fancy a piece of this? It might actually help. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's real chocolate. Now, this stuff could do serious damage. You know, if I hit you over the head with this afterwards, you won't even notice. It'll just shatter into a thousand little pieces. It will not affect you. If I hit you over the head with this afterwards, you are in serious trouble. And so am I. I'll probably be arrested for serious, grievous bodily harm. Thick and thin. And the question is, how thick is your Jesus? I was going to do this with plates of glass, but then 
we did a health and safety audit and decided that wouldn't be such a good idea. Because we know that the things that sometimes are terribly, terribly thin are fragile. They can't take pressure. They can't take weight when it's put upon them. Which is why very often the things that need to take pressure and need to carry weight are much thicker, much stronger, much more durable, much more able to withstand pressure. And so my question this morning is, how substantial is your Jesus? How able is the Jesus that you have in your mind and that you come to worship able to help you cope with the pressures that you face in your life day by day and in our society? Because if I have a thin understanding of Jesus, a thin concept of Jesus, my faith will be fragile, particularly in the face of pressure. There will be a lack of depth to my understanding of the implications of what it means to call myself a follower of Jesus. It will be a lightweight understanding of who Jesus is and what he's about. It will be really just like a veneer on the top of my life, on the surface of things, which it's very easy to scratch, very easy to separate out from the real me. To be able to cope with the pressure of life, to grasp the implications, to have some integrity to our faith, we need to have a thick Jesus. Stassen, in his book, asks this question. He says, in an age of mobility and change that can rock a person's faith, how do we validate the truth of what we believe? In our time of pluralistic encounter with multiple ideologies and religions, with rapid social, economic, and political change, people search for what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called solid ground to stand on. And Stassen talks about incarnational discipleship as the key to providing a solid ground to stand on in a diverse and shifting culture. And there are at least two elements which he identifies as being really important. The first one is the need to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ throughout all of life and all of creation. So that we're not living in two worlds. So that we don't have just a privatized faith that doesn't really engage with the world around us. And secondly, the need to take the historical Jesus seriously as truly revealing God's character and being the model for how we live our daily lives. Not reducing Jesus to a thin principle or a high ideal or just a doctoral affirmation without grounding an actual history, without observing his life and actions in a historical context. I think this is important. I think it's important for us to acknowledge the difference that can arise between simply knowing doctrine and knowing Jesus. It is quite possible to know quite a lot about the Bible, to be able to quote it, to know different kinds of doctrine, and yet not really know what it means to follow Jesus. It is possible. It's even possible to be a, an evangelist, someone able to set out the way the gospel works and know really very little of Jesus, have a very thin veneer of Jesus on the surface. Just read the opening chapter of Philippians and you'll see that that's always been the case. In good news, and in preaching the good news, the focus is not on the disastrous state of the world, or on the sinner, but on the Savior, 
on Jesus. And the way in which people understand Jesus is not just with our words, and particularly if the Bible doesn't mean very much to them, the way in which they will understand Jesus is what they see of him in us. And the way we will be able to cope with the pressures that face us in this world and in our lives is by being authentically more like Jesus day by day. The life Jesus modeled and the teaching of Jesus was not God's attempt to lay down a few principles for us to debate about what we might think or what we might do in a particular situation. The life and the teaching of Jesus was and is intended to shape our attitudes, our actions, and our behavior as his disciples. So if our Jesus is a thin character, someone we don't really think too much about, even though we might be completely caught up in the life of a church, or we might be very familiar with the Bible and its text. If our Jesus is a thin character, our faith will be fragile when put under pressure. We will lack the depth of the implications of what it means to seek to follow him. So I'd like to read from a portion of scripture this morning, which you'll find on page... Uh, 1182, if you're following in the church Bibles. <clears throat> it's the book of Colossians. And I'd like to read from chapter 1 and a bit from chapter 2 and a section from chapter 3. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Or page 1182, I think it is, in the church editions of the Bible. <clears throat> Paul has some powerful insights for us about Jesus. Paul's concept of Jesus was thick and thorough. Verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then over in chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, where Paul says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. And then on chapter 3 from verse 1, Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, 
Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. <clears throat> Taking that first thing that, that, that Stassen says, acknowledging the lordship of Christ throughout all of life and all of creation, we see that reflected very powerfully in what Paul has to say in Colossians chapter 1 from verse 15. You'll find similar kinds of things in John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1. They're some of the most remarkable sections of the New Testament. The people Paul was writing to lived in a very uncertain world. It was politically uncertain. It was the time of the Roman Empire, which was strong and dominating which tolerated some local practices and some local groups, but wiped out others. Always dealing with local uprisings. Always needing to impose its authority and to make sure that people conform to its basic order. Imposing order in all kinds of brutal ways, like crucifixion, which was not just localized to Jerusalem. It was common practice. It was a politically uncertain world where you had to be careful it was a spiritual culture in which these people lived that was strong and all-pervasive. Temples and temples to gods were everywhere. If you've ever had an opportunity to visit some of those ancient sites, it is amazing. The scale of some of the temples around Ephesus and the size of some of the little ones all along the streets mirrored in different cultures today and in different ways. <clears throat> everywhere. And the religions claiming secret knowledge for those who were truly enlightened and able to bring you into a knowledge that would release your soul. And one of the growing influences in Colossae at this time would have been that the material world and material things were really irrelevant. It was this spiritual insight that was all important. Kind of the opposite to a lot of what happens in our society today. And these believers <clears throat> had to try and navigate their way through this contemporary world that they lived in <clears throat> with all its pressures to conform and all the fears that were associated with that, just as many people around our world as Christians have to do today. And where did this Jew 
Where did this crucified Jew fit in in all of this? Where is the great glory in the midst of the Roman Empire and its great civilization of talking about following someone who was crucified? Declaring him Lord. Why would you want to do that when Caesar was Lord? Why would you want to be seen as politically subversive? Would your Jesus be strong enough to carry that kind of weight? Would your Jesus be strong enough so that when they come for you and take you as a subversive, completely misunderstanding everything that you were about, and arrest you and put you to death, that you can still be a disciple of Jesus? Declaring him Lord could isolate you from your family, from your trade, from your community. You needed a pretty thick Jesus to be able to stand the pressures in those situations. And many people were under pressure. And there were many attractions coming into the church. So when Paul says, by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him and for him. He is speaking directly to the issues that were troubling the church and undermining the faith of believers as they tried to navigate their way through their contemporary world. Everything, everything seen and everything unseen, is connected with, is related to Jesus. And what's more, His death and resurrection have implications for everything that is seen and unseen, material or spiritual, political or cultural. For God was pleased, as Paul puts it, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's obviously difficult for us to hear this in the same way as the early Christians in Colossae heard it. We read this and we are asking slightly different questions of this text than the people would have been asking when they heard this. Because Paul is pushing every button that they were dealing with at that time in their society, in their culture. Every threat, every challenge. He's addressing them. And he's addressing them by keeping Jesus at the center. He's addressing them by saying there is no part of life and no part of culture and no part of the political uh, setups of this world that is outside the realm of the control of Jesus. And that for those people would have been a huge encouragement, maybe also a great challenge, not to dabble, not to give way, not to give in to the pressures upon them. And I think for us, while we come to this text with lots of different questions, we live in a different age, we're educated in a different way, we have a different kind of understanding of how the world works. Materialism is far more of an issue for us now than it was then. When we come to this text, we need to hear some of the same basic things, though. Paul is making clear that everything is connected to Jesus and everything should be seen in terms of Jesus and everything is affected by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Because our world is disjointed. There's a lot of pressure on many of us, particularly our young people, to keep your faith private. You know, go to university, get a good job, do all those things, but just keep, keep your Jesus stuff to yourself. 
because that's really where religion belongs. That's where faith belongs. And the temptation is to actually start to do that. There is a temptation to start living with our head in two different worlds, as it were, where Jesus is the Sunday box, and he comes out on Sunday. But relating Jesus to the world around me, to the ethical challenges, to the moral challenges, to the political challenges that are around us, that actually becomes very difficult. And what ultimately happens is that if Jesus is just the thin veneer on our lives, it cracks and the pressure shows. And sometimes our young people can't cope with that. And the church sometimes suffers terribly as people cannot connect up their world and they have to make a choice. Some live just with duplicity and it's not just young people. They live with a sense of performing as a Christian but not really being there. And some just walk away. We need a thick Jesus to support us, a substantial Jesus that we know is in control, that we know around him all things revolve, that we know that from the beginning to the end, from the earth to the heavens, there is Jesus. The second thing that Stassen talks about, which I think is reflected well in this passage, is this idea of taking the historical Jesus seriously as truly revealing God's character and being the model for how to live our daily lives. So that we don't reduce Jesus to a thin principle or a high ideal. Verse 15 of chapter 1 that we read together. He is the image of the invisible God. In chapter 2 verse 6, believers have received Christ Jesus as Lord. In verse 20... Believers have died with Christ to the basic principles of the world. In verse 1 of chapter 3, believers have been raised with Christ and their lives are now hidden with Christ in God. But those opening words of verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. It's clear that there isn't someone floating around somewhere in the universe looking like a first century Jewish person called God. The only person who floats around the universe with a face is Doctor Who. God is not Doctor Who, even though sometimes I think in our minds there's the temptation to think of God like a kind of Doctor Who character. So clearly that's not the case. So when Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, what does he mean? It's nothing to do with his face. It's nothing to do with his physicality in that sense. Because if it was, we're all stuffed because they didn't have digital cameras in those days. So what's the image? The image is the life. It's the life of Jesus. It's the words of Jesus. It's the actions of Jesus. Everything he did, everything he said, gives us a sense of what God is like. That's why the life is important. The death and resurrection of Jesus are not the image of God. They're the work of God. And they tell us something vitally important about God's justice and God's grace and God's relationship with us. But what is the image? It's Jesus, his life, his actions, his words, his mercy, the challenges he issued, the compassion he showed, the truthful way he spoke. That's the image of God that is given to us and recorded for us in Scripture. 
And because we have received him as Lord, because we died with him to the way the world works, because we have been raised with him and our lives are hidden, are bound up in him, then Paul says we are called to live like him. Not just let him be an idea. Not just let him be something in the back of our minds or in our heads, but to be our model. And that's what Paul calls us to do. He calls us in verse 6 of chapter 2 to continue to live in him. And I don't think that means just simply make sure you have a decent doctrinal view of Jesus. He says in verse 8, don't be taken captive by the ideologies, the trends and the attitudes of the world. In verse 20, you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world. Live by a different set of rules. You've been raised with him and so... That big list of things that we have in Colossians, the things to avoid, the things to be. Paul is saying, make sure that your concept of Jesus is a thick, substantial concept, that your knowledge of Jesus, soak yourself in Jesus. The Gospels are not given to us so that we have something to tell the children in Sunday school. They're given to us so that we know the image of God. The actions of Jesus are not just nice ideas that it would be good if we could maybe think about them. It is the model for how we ought to live. So as Stassen says, I think a thicker Jesus means acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ throughout all of life and all of creation so that we don't end up living in two different worlds. It's taking the historical Jesus seriously as truly revealing God's character and being the model for how to live our daily lives. And it's this kind of commitment, this kind of conviction that all things seen and unseen in heaven and on earth are tied up with Jesus that creates solid ground to stand on in a shifting world. Once you put your Christian faith, once you put Jesus in the Sunday box and leave it there, you're in trouble. I guarantee your world will fall apart. It will become confused. It will not be sustainable. You will know in your heart you're living a lie. Being a Christian is following Jesus. That's what believing means. Not simply making a statement, verbalizing a statement about something that you have come to believe in your head. It's about following Jesus. And it's this kind of commitment, through commitment to Jesus, imitating the life of Jesus, that also proves the validity of our faith in a broken and diverse world. Just as Jesus is, the credible, is credible as the image of God, we are to be the credible images of Jesus to the world around us. That's the challenge. But that's also what gives your faith substance. The whole idea of being a disciple was to learn from the master. It was to be an apprentice, to learn to cut the wood the way the master did, to learn to weld the metal the way the master did. The whole idea of being a disciple of Jesus is to learn to live life the way the master did because that's when we become the image of Christ to the world around us. It's a commitment to being a disciple to learning the way, the attitudes, the behavior. That's what generates an integrity that both strengthens you in your faith and makes your witness more credible to the world. 
So how thick is your Jesus? Don't live with a thin stick of an idea. Don't live with a thin veneer of religion. Don't live with a fragile faith. Make sure you have a substantial Jesus, a thick Jesus, a strong Jesus. And the way to do that is to pay attention to his life, his attitudes, his teaching, just as Paul does, just as Paul encourages us to, to learn to do what he did, to learn to live like he lived, to treat people like he treated them, to serve as he served. This is why Paul, John, Peter, James, the writer of the Hebrews, take the trouble to write to the churches. So let's hear what they have to say to us this morning.